Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you? Great. Well, typically on the Music Buzz podcast, we talk to musicians. Sometimes we don't. And today is one of those days we don't, but super excited to welcome our guest, Doug Herzog. Doug is a legendary American television executive. He was formerly the president of Viacom Music and Entertainment Group, where he oversaw MTV, VH1, Logo, Comedy Central, Palladia, TV Land, and Spike. His career began at CNN in 1981, became a segment producer of Entertainment Tonight in 1983, and his Viacom career began in 1984 when he joined MTV. During his term... At Viacom, he started MTV News as a director, creating the network's influential news department, and eventually rising to president of MTV Productions, overseeing all the channel's original programming. Developed and supervised many of the brand's most enduring and groundbreaking franchises, which include Real World, Unplugged, Road Rules, as well as the network's signature events, uh, the Movie Awards, and the annual MTV Video Music Awards. So without further ado, please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Doug Herzog. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's an awfully lengthy introduction. I always do that. That way, you know, if you got to get off really fast or you get a call you'd rather take, you know, we've already covered it. <laughs> That's right. We've I always <laughs> describe myself as, you know, former TV executive and cable weasel. <laughs> I like that. I should have let you do it this time. <laughs> well, it's an honor to talk to you today, man. I mean, what an incredible legacy that we just heard Andy talk about there that you've helped create and guide and uh, in searching for a parallel to uh, cultural significance of the advent of MTV. I mean, I, I was kind of just thinking about that yesterday. And the only thing that comes to mind to me is the Beatles first appearance on Ed Sullivan. When, you know, 73 million people watched that, and the very next day, thousands of kids were bugging their mom and dad for a guitar or a drum set. And then every other English combo that knew four chords rode their coattails over here with the British invasion. It changed music back then. And then in the early 80s, well, I guess August 1st, 1981 was the first date of MTV. But 
it took maybe a few years for it. I mean, and I kind of remember that very first thing when the Buggles thing, a video killed the radio star. Mm -hmm. I, I remember that, but it was maybe a few years later when it really took full effect and changed our culture. I mean, tell me how you worked your way into that. You're right about obviously, you know, the Beatles. That was like a lightning bolt, right? Uh, yeah, it struck, yeah, yeah, it yeah. struck the uh, the planet. You know, MTV's rise. You know, it wasn't a single moment. It was you know, it right. kind of rose over time. But you know, the moment I got there, which was about three years in, which was the summer of 1984, uh, I had gotten hired to run the the uh, to to start the news. Uh, department i had been working in entertainment tonight booking music stories for them and that's how i came to the attention of mtv but the summer of 1984 was i believe like the really the peak of that first era of mtv the music mm, the sure. actual music video era mm. so this was the summer of uh prince's purple rain bruce springsteen's born in the usa yeah uh, the jackson's victory tour and of course you know michael jackson's thriller album uh madonna you know i refer to the four of them it's like the the mount rushmore of music videos mm -hmm. no question and, yeah. and i got there they had you know mtv had just been on the cover of time magazine and that was really the apex and the peak and that's when people you know were really discovering music you know through mtv and through music videos just after that probably a year maybe more like a year and a half later the novelty of just watching music videos it started to wane a little bit and that's when the folks who were running mtv decided we needed to make actual tv shows and and i was the guy charged with making those tv shows which at the time was heresy i mean people were like this mm -hmm. isn't rock and roll what are you doing we're not supposed to be like tv we're not supposed to make tv shows what we're going to make a game show that's crazy but that's what we did. And that, of course, you know, set the what I like to call MTV 2.0 um, mm. or Mach 2 into uh, into motion. And I think it's hard for people, um, particularly young people, to understand what MTV meant to young people like us. We were young back then. At right. that time, MTV was like TikTok, YouTube, Spotify, yeah. Twitter. All rolled in together. Right. All rolled into one. And that's yeah. where everybody went it was kind of a, re a revelation for young people at the time it was what every young person watched absolutely yep. no question yeah. no question i've got a question so and and i read some in the intro so in 1981 you'd started at cnn and obviously you mentioned that mtv launched in 1981 as well so were your sites kind of on mtv or did they come to you after a few years well yeah, what, I, I, you know I'll tell you a funny story. I uh, I graduated college. Uh, I actually graduated a little early, but my my class uh, graduated in the spring of '81. And the summer before, I had written a letter to Mike Nesmith, who I had read yeah. in Billboard had started Pop Clips, this show, which were which was he was making music videos. I wrote him this letter saying how I thought music and video was the future. And I wanted to intern there. And could he please get in touch with me? I used to handwrite everything out because I couldn't type. I still can't type. And this this was the days of manual typewriters and whiteout. By the way, Mike Nesmith's mother invented invented whiteout. whiteout that's yeah, right. She did. And yep. and I still I have that letter handwritten in a oh, notebook wow, cool. from college. He never he never got back to me. But I was clearly interested in music and television. When I went to CNN, I was working on a a D-list celebrity talk. You got to remember, this was 1981. Nobody had cable. Nobody knew who Ted Turner was. Everybody thought 24-hour news was a crazy idea. It was a startup. People just didn't call it that. Mm. But I would book music guests on this little show that we were producing every night at 10 o'clock in Los Angeles that nobody was watching. 
And then I got a gig at Entertainment Tonight, uh, doing the same thing, but obviously on a slightly bigger platform. Entertainment Tonight was just a couple of years in. And my big claim to fame was I booked uh, the first national interview with Bruce Springsteen um, uh, on his Born in the USA tour. And I kind of scooped MTV. Uh, We were able to uh, run our interview two weeks before theirs. So I think that's how I came to the attention of the the folks who were running into you, I was like, who's that guy? And maybe yeah. he should work for us. <laughs> the guy to nice. beat us to the punch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dane actually plays drums on the, on the new tune with Springsteen and Mellencamp. Oh, wow. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I got, I got a bunch of Mellencamp stories, but I don't want to get you fired. <laughs> okay, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> thanks. I, I got a, I got a see, bunch of Mellencamp stories. We're starting a new record next Monday, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want. I, 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 I need to be there for a few more weeks. I anyway. saw him in. Uh, I saw him perform in uh, September at Farm Aid uh, up in uh, Connecticut, mm. and he just did it with a little like two or yeah. three piece combo, and it was he was great though. Good, great little set. Yeah, it's been twenty six years with John. So wow, good for you, man. Yep. So entertainment tonight. You had Springsteen, and uh, you go into MTV World. So obviously you mentioned all the all the acts in the eighties that were that were huge at that time in eighty four. But one thing I was thinking about in talking to you today, because around that time, I don't know, a lot of the you know, when Kiss came in and took their makeup off. And if you look at some of those, you know, quite a lot of them pretty awful videos from bands that were big in the sixties and seventies that were really revived by MTV, I guess. Well, the, you know, the, I think the biggest, well, there were a bunch of them. I mean, you know, Steve Winwood had an MTV hit, right. um, Rod Stewart. Kinks, Come Dancing. Uh, Kinks, Come Dancing, right? Uh, in their Arista uh, era, um, you know, Rod Stewart uh, was uh, yeah. a, a big star for uh, for MTV. But I think that, you know, the, the biggest band, the band that MTV really brought back, or could, at least can take credit for helping to, to truly bring back, is Aerosmith. And oh, yeah. you know, when Aerosmith, you know, they were... They were pretty strung out uh, yep. at that point. Uh, they were on the skids to a certain degree. And, you know, yeah. when Rick Rubin and, and Russell Simmons had that idea to pair them with Run DMC, uh, I don't think the band thought much of it, but it really it rejuvenated their career. And then they went and made a bunch of great records and mm-hmm. great videos and big tours. And they became one of the biggest bands in the world after really being counted out there. Uh, they were counted out they were terrible i saw them live during the done with mirrors tour which is about 83 maybe or four it was right before the permanent vacation was the comeback record was it not right Mm -hmm. they had all those hits that's right that's right yeah those guys were it was painful to see that because they weren't in very good shape. I, I can remember being I can remember being in the MTV newsroom. You know, we, you know, we were all fans of Aerosmith and sure. we were happy to see them. I remember looking at the footage of, you know, the Run DMC footage when it came in because it was a big deal. Uh and, you know, you know, I think people though were generally more excited about Run DMC than Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. Um and as it turned out it was great for both of them. I met the band um right after they came back into focus and got fit when uh, Kaladner and I went out to see them at rehearsal in Boston for the Get a Grip project. And that was a treat, you know, seeing them in rehearsal, watching them like a garage band. It was a bit like the anthology Beatle tapes. It was just great to see them in the formative stage of doing what you would eventually hear when they got together with Fairbairn. Yeah, they were, they were, they were a great band and that was a great run for them. And uh, they made the most of it. Uh, and, you know, they were great to work with. You know, we worked pretty closely with them. We did, you know, they were... They were, fr- they were they were friends of the MTV family and um, you know appeared on a lot of the award shows and sure. uh, et cetera and promotions and things like that and, and always always great to work with yeah nice guys yeah. good guys 
Well, it's interesting, too, because as I'm listening to you guys talk and, and thinking about this, it's, you know, like everybody won during that time. I mean, like Hugh did the record covers for uh, White Snake's 1987 album, Aerosmith, Get a Grip, Bon Jovi, New Jersey, Rush, Hold Your Fire. All of those were in that pocket in time where, and I'm just using that as one example, where, you know, MTV played not just a role to, to benefit the bands and themselves, but all the outliers of, you know, people that are doing graphic design and people at radio and people. Well, those were, right? those were good times. Sure. I, yeah. I mean, everybody was winning, right? Yeah. The, uh, the, yeah. the record companies were selling records. The, the bands were, you know, sort of touring and selling out. Uh, people were making videos. The video business was, you know, you know, rolling. And mm -hmm. it was, it was a flush time. Uh, everything was good uh, in the music business. I think back then, I think that's how most of us who were in it back then would look at it. Yeah. You mean before we started feeding off the carcass of what used to be the music business? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, everything, you know, I mean, I, you know, I've watched the industry that I grew up in, which is the cable television industry change dramatically. Um, yeah. You know, I, my, my podcast is basically about the, you know, it's going to be this sort of like goofy oral history of a, of basic cable, you know, mm -hmm. which there's a beginning, a middle, and there's about to be an end. I mean, it's going away. You know, the streamers yeah. are about to eat them whole. So look, nothing yeah. is forever. Everything changes. The music's still here. That's the important thing. Yeah. I, yeah. Sometimes I bemoan the fact that I spent, uh, you know, thousands of hours of my life searching for records and record bins, and now it's all in my back pocket. Uh, but, uh, but so it is, and that's, that's probably a good thing too. Right. But going back to that era, you know, you, you mentioned those bands, those, those were the A-list bands. But, you know, yeah. they ushered in an era of, you know, hard rock and hair metal, which right. MTV <laughs> really, you know, embraced. Mm -hmm. And um, it was it was an interesting time. Those were some interesting bands. Not all of them, I, I think, stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. um, no. But I can tell you they were fun to work with. I used to I used to look at the heavy metal bands as I would say professional wrestlers. You know, the fans <laughs> thought they were the greatest athletes like in the world. That. That's great. Um, heard, they understood it was they yeah. understood it was show business and they came to and they came to play. And so I always I always appreciated that about that. You know, because we were making TV at the end of right. the day. At the end of the day, we were in sure. the TV business at MTV and the metal bands were good TV. Oh yeah. But who comes to mind in that? Oh my God. There's, you know, I mean, you, well, you mentioned White Snake, but you know, there's, you know, there's Poison and Motley Crue and Rat yeah. and Dokken and mm -hmm. oh my God. I mean, the, the list just goes on and on and on right. and on. Um, and uh, you know, some of them were good, some of them not yeah. so much. There are a couple of great songs in there. There are a couple mm -hmm. of really horrible songs and and videos that you know we probably shouldn't be showing anymore. Right. But uh, it was a time, <laughs> and they were, and it was a stark. Um, uh, difference from the grunge bands that kind of came, you know, right behind them, who honestly weren't that much fun, didn't really like the idea of TV, and didn't really play along that much with MTV. Now that being said, they were great right. bands and great music, but they sort of they sort of railed against MTV a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. the MTV news thing. So I mean, I look back at that very fondly because I was always, you know, as all of us were, you know, yeah, liner, liner I always notes listen to people that. and reading rock magazines and stuff, but. MTV News was like, you know, I got used to watching Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite every night because my parents watched it. But MTV was like, oh, this is my news. You know, this sure. is this is the it, news yeah. I, I mean, it, it, yeah, Kurt Loder was the was the Walter Cronkite of uh, yeah. you know sort Indeed. of popular music. Look, you know, <clears throat> I got there, and when I got there. Uh, what was happening was basically there were two or three people who were kind of rewriting billboard stories and the VJs, the original VJs, Mark Goodman, Martha Quinn, JJ mm. Jackson, Alan Hunter, you know, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. they would, they would read the stories and we decided along the way, well, a couple things happened. First, we were, you know, 
trying to get interviews with big stars. And, and there became a point where the biggest stars, like the Bonos and the, the, the Springsteens, didn't want to sit with the VJs because they didn't necessarily have the credibility they were looking for, right? So, you know, there was a, you know, I had a couple of ex-writers in that writer's room, and I hired a, a friend named, uh, who I went to college with, uh, named Linda Corradina, who ended up running MTV News. And we decided, well, maybe we should go get Kurt Loder and establish separate news personalities from the mm-hmm. VJs. And that's what we did. And, and Kurt was the, you know, sort of the first big one. And, uh, and he was a guy, you know, who had come straight from Rolling Stone that Bruce wanted to sit with and Bono wanted to sit with and Prince would sit with, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, where they yeah. really, we couldn't really get them to do that with the VJs. And, and that was a, that was a big turning point. I would say the turning point really was at Live Aid, um, where we did a lot of behind the scenes news coverage while the VJs were sort of up on the stage doing their thing. And that's when the tide sort of, formally turned you know Mm. in favor of the mtv news team and and their correspondence you know versus having the vjs do it sure now were you at live aid personally i was yeah yeah, i was running around backstage you could you can go on youtube and you can you can see my arm coming in and out i interviewed all the people that the vjs you know uh or, or i should say the vjs i interviewed all the people that the mtv executives thought the vjs shouldn't be seen with so there's oh. I'm interviewing like Dion Warwick. I'm interviewing Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Uh, I, I actually I also, I also interviewed Grace Grace Slick. Actually, speaking of another artist who uh, you know a, a vintage artist and legacy artist who MTV yeah. helped reinvent. No question. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So that's interesting. Did, did you run into Dylan and Keith and Ronnie? That well, day? I, 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 I will that? tell you. <laughs> what was going on there, man? I, 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 I have some <laughs> wow. photos. I was back in the artist. You know, things, security began to really break down near the end. So I was back in the artist compound right before Dylan went on. And uh, I have a photo of Phil Collins keith richards and ronnie wood standing like just outside you know one of those trailers together um as keith and uh and ronnie were getting ready to go on with dylan i also it had broken down to the uh point where i got myself and my camera crew on the stage uh for the final number the big uh lionel richie led we are the world oh sure yeah yeah so uh this guy who uh uh, i work with uh, the legendary joe davola who was an mtv producer um first thing he does is and you can see this it's an mtv documentary he taps me on the shoulder and he says point the camera follow me with the camera and he goes out on stage during the finale and he puts his arms around john taylor and another guy from duran duran and starts singing we are the world so so that's great and then the song ends and i rush to the center of the stage with the camera crew and i bum rush lionel richie uh i like tap him on the shoulder he's literally just finished like he just won the super bowl or something and oh, sure and, and i'm like you know and instead of like saying hey you go to disneyland i go how do you feel and you can kind of see him kind of recoil i'm right in his face and uh he answers that's also that's also on uh that's on youtube somewhere as well but that was a that was a great hot day in philadelphia and uh it was uh it was it was it was definitely something i'll never forget 
How did he feel? <laughs> well, he was actually, you know, if you watch him, he, he, he uh, you know, very poised and answers the question and, you know, talked about how much money they raised and gave a figure. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the other, the other thing, you can actually catch a glimpse of me. And I'm wearing, like at the time, what were very fashionable, those Tom Cruise risky business Ray-Bans. Right. Yeah, it's of course. Nice. It's, a, it's 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, man. I have, have Ray-Bans on. It was the 80s. I don't know. Hey, good for you. Yeah. People did that stuff. That's well, and I remember Phil Collins played. He he did a double gig that he day, played. Right? He took the uh, Concord over took in the, the middle Concord. of the show. Yeah, he he played, he played that with he, Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, he played that ill-fated Zeppelin set. Ooh, yeah, that was that was rough. So I remember the. So here's what I remember about the Zeppelin set. I I was I was on stage watching. I couldn't bring the camera crew up, but I I was standing on stage watching because it was going to be Led Zeppelin, and right behind me are Tom Petty and Stan Lynch. And they are giddy as schoolboys at the prospect of seeing Led Zeppelin. They're just so excited. And um, <laughs> so, the, so then the band starts and it's not good. And I kind of turn around and they're kind of making faces like they just ate sour lemons. And then I turn back <laughs> and it's getting worse. And then I turn back to them. And they're gone. <laughs> they bailed. Yeah. <laughs> it just wasn't. That never took. Never got, got off the ground, did it? No. No. Guys, no. started. Didn't, 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 didn't really work. One of those. One of those things. Oh well. yeah. Now the other, you know, programming that music based in their uh, in your career, unplugged. Where did that actually start? Because I've heard various bands kind of say, "Oh, we were we were the beginning of it." The unplugged origin goes back to a video music award show where John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora performed acoustic. Um, you know, they're, uh, I'm a cowboy. Uh, oh, yeah. Wanted Dead or Alive. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wanted Dead or Alive. They, they performed wanted, uh, um, acoustic. And two producers, a um, uh, guy named Jim Burns, who has uh, sadly passed, and a guy named Bob Small uh, came to see us. And they said, we think this is a show. And we should, you know, and, you know, you can do a show with the big stars performing their songs acoustic. We're like, oh, that's a good idea. And so we jumped into it. Over time, Bob and Jim kind of got pushed to the side and the MTV producers sort of took hold. Uh, Alex Coletti and, and Joel Gallen, um, who are two, uh, two of MTV's best music producers still out there doing this kind of stuff, by the way. And it, originally, we couldn't really get big acts to do it nobody really wanted to do it so I, you know it was originally we had a host in the beginning jules Shear. remember uh song oh yeah jules, that's jules, right jules the polar bears sure so jules yeah. jules hosted and we had good songwriter you know uh i think you know like the first i mean people like sid straw or the alarm i think you know a different in tilbrook from squeeze you know it was not you know sort of big acts good music great performances but you know we you know we didn't have the big accident it's probably about six seven or eight shows in before we finally convinced don henley to do it and henley uh. was henley was the first big star to do it embrace it and then once henley did it and he did it great and it was a great big success um it might have been an album as well um then we started you know everybody started lining up and then by the way they lined up because you know these unplugged albums that the good ones the big ones were selling a bunch of records obviously obviously eric clapton right yeah that was is huge. The most famous but you know yeah. there were a lot of cds put out most of them here in my dylan my, had one he, dylan had one released rod, rod stewart had one rods, rods yeah, was great yeah, yeah. rods was great ronnie with wood. ronnie wood uh, ronnie was with there. a little bit yeah 
yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, we, you know, ultimately we had everybody. Elton John did an unplugged. REM did an unplugged. I mean, who didn't at, in that era? Springsteen kind of did one. <laughs> wasn't really unplugged. But, uh, you know, it was the unplugged became a really, really, really big thing. Yeah. When I look back to uh, Steve Binder's production of uh, the 68 comeback special for Elvis, there was a, a nice segment in that, too, where the band sat in the round. So I always think of that as also a much more prehistoric version of Unplugged, but it was certainly there. I, I, yeah, well, absolutely. And that was a big inspiration. Yep. You know, he was he was definitely, you know, that was name checked, I think, in the in the actual pitch. Hmm. Um, uh, one, one interesting hmm. story. Uh, Neil Young did one. Uh, oh, yeah, Niels is great. Yeah. Well, so, so the story oh, yeah. behind that is that was the second taping. The first oh. taping was was uh, at the old Ed Sullivan Theater in New York prior to Letterman moving in. Uh, mm-hmm. We uh, had booked it for Neil and Neil was not in a good mood that night. And hmm. he disappeared before the show into the streets of New York. He was in a bad mood. Alex Coletti, our producer, chased him down. Um, he really didn't want to tape the net that night. By the way, there's a whole audience sitting there and a band and and uh, uh, and, he, and he ultimately did. It was absolutely it was one of the most painful musical experiences I ever had. I mean, really? he would do songs three or four times in a row. It was just brutal. And so when it was over, uh, you know, the his managers and Neil, and the record company said, you know, we want you to scrap this. We will pay to set it up again in LA in a couple of weeks and try it again, which we did. And that became the show. Mm. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cause that album's fantastic. That album's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. My brother bought me a ticket to Massey hall in 1972 to see Neil. And that was released as a CD later. And I remember the moment when he asked the girl in the front row to stop taking pictures because the, it was throwing his timing off. You know, so his, he was even scolding audience members yeah. back. Well, what's interesting, too, is, in, and to your point earlier about alternative bands, the alternative bands really not only embraced MTV Unplugged, but it was a huge, um, oh, Nirvana's huge additive huge. in their career. Pearl Jams and Nirvanas and Yeah, they, they, and they look, those guys, by the way, you know, Nirvana, surprisingly, did almost everything we ever asked them to do. Mm. They were, they were really? extre- yeah, they were extremely accommodating. Pearl Jam in those days, not so much. Um, I think Eddie, you know, has probably evolved a fair amount from them, but they were they were much more difficult. Nirvana showed up for everything. Video Music Awards and mm-hmm. Unplugs. Nirvana played a set in the MTV studio early on. Um, mm-hmm. And they were, you know, they were always on MTV News and sitting down for interviews. And, you know, they were pretty great. They had a, they had a couple of patron saints within the building, as did Pearl Jam. But uh, but they were they were they were over. Nirvana was great to work with and an mm. unbelievable band. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. Absolutely. I am always curious to know, as someone who has done art di- art direction on the 12-inch platform and then the, the subsequent CD platform and now the 2-inch postage stamp, bottom left corner of Apple uh, iTunes, um, how much did artwork matter to you as a listener when you were in stores? Oh my God, growing growing up, it was everything. I mean, that's that's all we had. You know, it, it was your what you imagined in your head listening to the radio or a record. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe seeing them on TV. Maybe there was not a lot of music on TV, as you know. No. And the the albums were everything. I can remember buying you know albums sometimes just for the cover. Um, I was like, well, that looks cool. And that sort of speaks to me a little bit. Maybe I'll like that. And yeah. um, 
Yeah, I mean, and I still love album covers. You know, I still I still collect vinyl, and and I will buy something sometimes just for the cover. But uh, yeah, no, I, oh my god, I yeah, I mean, album album artwork. You know, it's it, it was so important and so meaningful and so etched. You know, you know, like a song. I, if I see a particular album cover, it can bring me right back to a particular time and place. Music is memory. It's it becomes a soundtrack. Well, yeah. And I'm grateful for that fact that the, the artwork also managed to occupy a space in that same same concept. Yeah. Absolutely. So Doug, what's what's some of your favorite covers from back in the day? Oh my god. Um well, I, it's funny we, as I was telling this story, the, the the one cover I can remember still one of my favorite albums. Uh no judgment please, but um Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band, which is maybe the greatest disco record of all time, mm. uh, a guy named August Darnell. But, you know, I remember being in the record store and it had like this sort of jazzy deco co cover. And I was like, that's really cool and interesting. And I like the band's name. Like, let's see what this is about. You know, mm. I was probably in Sam Goody and, you know, you know, Paramus, New Jersey. Um, I, uh, you know, big reggae fan is, you know, as I told you, so those you know, those early, I, I, I do not have uh, the original Catch a Fire, the one that was in the Zippo lighter. I tracked that down later, but mm -hmm. uh, I did not have that original one. But, you know, God, I loved all, I, lo I love the, the imagery of, you know, the reggae albums from the 70s, particularly, you know, particularly some of the really crude stuff that would come straight yeah. out of, uh, you, know, you know, sort of straight out of Jamaica. But, um, you know, I was a big funk fan, so uh, -huh. uh you know, I there. you know, so I love that um, that pink Rufus, you know, with almost like the Rolling Stone type, you know, lips mm -hmm. and tongue. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. a great cover. I, I also love the <laughs> I also love the one after that, which you know, just you know, the with all those beautiful pictures of uh, Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. But yeah. um, you know, I, <laughs> I I was telling the story the other day. I remember. You know, so I'm 62. So I, I think I was probably about I'm trying to remember how old I was. I think I was about 11 or 11 or so. <clears throat> but I can remember seeing the Exile on Main Street cover and thinking, wow, that mm -hmm. looks dark and dangerous. And I want to hear uh -huh. that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I yeah. just can remember it's like did not it was not smiling back at you. And it yeah. really was unlike anything, you know, that I'd ever seen before. I can remember that. And I was like, I want to, what's in there? I want to, I remember my sister had it. I was like, I want to check that out. And it's a dark and grungy record. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. classic rock as it is. It's, it's, it's dark. No, it's the greatest. Grungy. It's the greatest. But, you know, I can, and also, I, I, you know, one of the other ones, you know, was uh, around the same period was um, there's a riot going on. I had grown Fly, up a, yeah. a big Sly Stone fan. You know, yeah. He had those great hits, those pop hits, those like sort of post Woodstock, let's all get together and figure this out yeah. kind of stuff. And yeah. then all of a sudden I, I like, well, there's this new album and it, you know, had that sort of like faux American flag thing. I was like, well, right. that's mm -hmm. lie. I want that. And then I can remember mm -hmm. putting it on and going, oh, this sounds different. This doesn't right. sound mm -hmm. like the Sly Stone I thought I was getting. And um, in a good way. Well, I was, look, you know, I was a young guy. So it took me like, you know, not, I mean, I love the songs and I love the music, but I remember trying to wrap my head around it, you know? Yeah. It was, it wasn't everyday people. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. everyday people. It wasn't everyday people. Yeah. No, no. How much did you bring this visual infatuation and this sensibility that you had to your gig? Well, it's funny. I would, I would, I would try every once in a while. I had those images in my head and they stuck with me. I can remember 
<clears throat> at one point, and I can't remember the name of it, and it didn't, we, we did a couple episodes. We tried to do sort of an R&B version of Unplugged. I wanted to do more like of a stripped down R&B show, you know, of Unplugged. But, and I, but I remember very distinctly asking the uh, producers, I, wanted, I go, I wanted the vibe of the set to feel like the cover of uh, Marvin's, Marvin Gaye's uh, After the Dance. Um, I don't know if you remember that painting mm. on the cover of that of that album, but a very just by a very famous African American artist. And I was like, I, that's the vibe I want. That's what we're going for. Like a little bit of that, you know. So there's southern, you know, sort of chitlin circuit, you know, kind of vibe. Mm, and yeah. um, we didn't quite get there either with the look or the show, but but I tried. Yeah, from a fan perspective, um, we always like to talk about the live side and stuff with with our guests. As a as a fan, what was the first concert you went to? You bought a ticket to. Uh, you're pumped to go see. So a couple of quick stories about my concert going experience. So my mom was really into sort of black music and R and B music. Um, so she took uh, my, so the, so the first two concerts I saw, I actually went with my mom. Three of the first four concerts, I know this is not cool, but three of the first four concerts I saw, <laughs> I went with my mom. So she took me to see Al Green at uh, Avery Fisher Hall in New York, like at the height of it, it's like 72. Yeah. Mm. Oh, wow. We went to the Nanuet Theater Go Round to see Ray Charles and Gladys Knight and the Pips on a, oh on a stage God. that rotated. Whoa. In between there, I went to my very first rock concert with my uh, with one of my friends at Madison Square Garden. And to this day, it's my least favorite rock concert of all time. And I hope I don't offend anybody here, but it was Jethro Tull. Uh, it was the a Passion Play tour and it was <laughs> God awful. And I knew it and I, I was 12 years old and I knew it. Okay. Uh, um, sorry if I offended anybody who loves the flute and the tights. Yeah. That record, did, did they have a dancer on stage? Well, they showed a film. They showed a short. I remember this. They showed the yeah. film first, like a short film. They might have. I, I was so tuned out 20 minutes in, and I was 12. <laughs> I was just like, this sucks. Well, it, it's, it's a hard listen. I mean, that record was like the same song for two sides of an album. I, I, you know, I liked, you know, I loved Aqualong and Thick as a Break. They were, you know, those were, you know, those yeah, were yeah, stuff yeah. I was listening to. But the, the, what, the concert that changed my <laughs> life, also courtesy of my mom, long story short, I ended up in the front row in October of 1975 in the Kingston National Stadium in Kingston, Jamaica to see Bob Marley and the Whalers 1975 oh, wow. and Stevie Wonder. Oh, and, and I was, I knew almost nothing about Bob Marley coming into it. And Stevie Wonder was in the middle of that incredible run. Wow. Sure. Yeah. Yep. That concert, Bob Marley in particular, that performance, by the way, who performed with uh, uh, Peter Tosh, uh, oh yeah, and Bunny Whaler. Last time they ever performed live together, lost on me at the time. Mm -hmm. Wow, but that's cool. Cha changed everything. I picked up a copy of Natty Dread as I uh, left the airport, and um, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. Geez, almost fifty years later, 40, 40 some odd years later, I'm still a Bob Marley fanatic, a reggae fanatic, a music fanatic. Yeah. That's the that's mm -hmm. the that's the concert that changed everything for me. Okay, it's like I, I just is, fell in love with the whole explains. thing. Yeah, that makes sense. I saw the Stones in '72. I'm your age. I'm 62, so I was 12. And Stevie Wonder opened for them, and it was the it was the Exile on Main Street tour. That's right. And that's right. It, it Superstition had just come out, and I'm telling you what, man, Stevie was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And of course, the Stones were unbelievable too. 
So that's stuff you never forget. I still got the I still got a book. I've never never forgotten it. And like I said, it's just an indelible mark on, you know, my my life, really. I mean, it was like, you know, my first time like sort of getting a little close up to showbiz and I was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. This seems like fun. Maybe this, you know, I mean, that's where I, maybe where it started to get to my head that maybe that was something, you know, somewhere I could be one day. You had so, to be involved in it somehow. Yeah. 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 I wanted to get closer to that. Steve is still great live. I worked on uh, some of those songs of the key of life, uh, tour dates two years ago. Gosh, what a band. Yeah. I <laughs> met, uh, well, speaking of which I met a guy named Greg Fillingaines. I don't know if you know who Greg is. Oh, Greg keyboard player. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Been with Stevie and Michael Jackson. And I mean, yep. everybody, Eric Clapton, Clapton, John Mayer. I mean, one of the great session guys of all time. He was right out of uh, high school in Detroit. It was his first gig with Stevie wonder. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And, um, Oh, and we became friends then, and I'm I'm still in touch with him. He was, you know, he's I'm 62. He was probably 63 now, 64. Yeah, and uh, he's been he's been with Stevie ever since. Very cool. That's great. Well, we should all have moms like yours. Yeah, yeah. She was she was uh, she was something in that regard. Well, know? my mom took me to see Alice Cooper. There you that go. Was a, that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes of that show, and she said, "We're out of here." Here, <laughs> people kept passing little little. Uh, cigarettes with no filters to her and stuff and yeah. she plus, plus you go home and now you're into her makeup yeah exactly <laughs> well my, the two friends that i took with me they wouldn't speak to me for a few months but uh, mm, anyway sure so doug tell us about your podcast oh gosh well it's not about music uh although uh our first pilot guest was uh fab five freddy who was the original host of yom tv raps on mtv oh yeah so mm -hmm. uh, we started there it's um i co-host it with a woman named jen cheney who writes who's the television critic for new york magazine and vulture and it's sort of a goofy oral history of basic cable um uh, or as i like to say the uh, about the glorious era when mm. cable was cool mm. um you know so we're going to cover everything from mtv to mad men and we're going to talk to mostly you know sort of stars and personalities you know who are in the shows but we're also talking to network executives and behind the scenes folks we interviewed a woman named lisa napoli um who wrote uh, a book called up all night which is about ted turner and the birth of cnn but you know we're uh we, we've uh, got jimmy kimmel ben stiller brian cranston uh greg kinnear chelsea handler cindy crawford mike judge from beavis and butthead uh dennis leary uh tom lennon and carrie kenny from reno 911 tim gunn from uh project runway uh you know i mean all kinds of people from the sort of eclectic history of basic cable look in a world of two and a half million podcasts um uh it's hard to find a a, a lane and yeah. uh, so so i say yeah. this might not be the best idea but we're the only people doing it so mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> there you go so we'll see we'll see where it takes absolutely are you tapping into the uh the people from sctv well they're not necessarily cable for so it's a very specific kind of thing so you know there's there's of course network television right and then there was you know sort of premium television like hbo showtime that kind of stuff and then there was right. basic cable which were all you know the kind of channels uh uh as uh, made famous in bruce springsteen's song you know 57 57 channels and nothing's on, on yeah. so this yeah, was like yeah. the, the sort of basic thing which was sort of the you know basic when it first came you know to being was completely low rent and it wasn't the networks by a long shot and then right. it began to build itself up and 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 gain audience and gain credibility and actually program some decent things but then it was like well but it's not as good as hbo 
And then at that moment, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, where it really finally hit its stride, where they were doing programming like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and Rescue right. Me and Damages and all these great, you know, it's always sunny to fill up these great scripted shows that Basic had finally figured out how to do. Then along mm-hmm. came streaming and stole their lunch. Yeah. And now, yeah. and now oddly, they're, you know, they're going away, you know, which is weird because I, you know, in a world where radio is still here, network television is still here um cable's probably going away uh mm. not tomorrow but it's going away yeah so the story has a beginning a middle and an end it'll, pro- it, it, it'll make a much better book one day i'm just too lazy yeah, to write it that's true that's yeah. right, a better book <laughs> so i was going to ask you about storytellers were you involved oh, in the i wasn't that was a vh1 show and that right. took place during my viacom hiatus you know i ended up working for viacom the company that owns mtv for most of my career okay. but from uh and I, and I never and I never really worked honestly at VH1 until the very oh, end. Okay. But uh, that's a great show. You know, I know all the folks who did it. This uh, Bill Flanagan, who you should have on the show sometime. By the way, I don't know if you know who Bill mm. is. Great rock critic oh, writer. Yeah. Worked sure. at MTV and VH1, is. and yeah. has got great stories. Written some great books, um, and really super super knowledgeable. That was, I think, I believe that was sort of Bill's baby. And, it was Ray da- um, Ray Davies did the. I mean Ray Davis, I guess in England, but that was his thing, right? He. He had a tour called Storyteller. Oh, is that how it started? I think he did the first one. Yeah. Got mm-hmm. it. And uh, one of my old MTV buddies, a guy named Van Toffler, uh, who ran MTV for many years, is about to uh, start a Kinks documentary. And he says he's got both the brothers, which... Are you kidding you know, me? I'm waiting should be, for that. should be interesting. I always, you know, speaking of, speaking of VH1, you know, behind the music. Ah, there you go. The Kinks dolls. Come on now. Yeah. There you with go. The, with the red hunting jackets. I'm, yeah. not, a, I'm not a fan. <laughs> uh, behind, I used to say about behind the music, the best episodes were always the ones with brothers. Because mm, brothers yeah. will say anything about each other. Whereas bandmates, there's a line. But if you're brothers, you can talk (laughs) shit all day. So like the Oasis one is great. The Kinks one is great. Uh, The Black Crows one is great. Like they will just talk shit because they don't care. It's like, I can say whatever I want. It's my brother. Yeah, they're all like that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the best ones. Always Mm -hmm. the best ones. So I I, I guess maybe I skipped that. What kind of a role did you have in the behind the music thing? Uh, nothing that was i uh, just oh. uh, just a fan i was, oh, I see. I was okay, just, okay. yeah that again that was a vh1 show i was uh uh i was i was just a fan but i, I always really loved the ones with you know brothers always oh, yeah. always always the most fireworks yeah always it, the most I, fireworks. I actually went back and started watching some of those with my, my boys not too long ago just, oh this is a great show i used to watch and i forgot how much it just became kind of a formula you know what i mean it's like the right. first half was build it up yeah, yeah. and then there was and some some of the shows, I think it was like the Huey Lewis one. It's like they couldn't find anything really bad about Huey. Oh, well, exactly. But, and, they, and you can tell even <laughs> when they tried to, it was like, uh, what he got a parking ticket or something. <laughs> you know? It was kind of too silly. nice of a guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You know, like anything else, you know, as we used to say at MTV in those days, whatever was whatever was worth doing was worth overdoing. And so we we <laughs> overdid that, and VH1 definitely overdid that. But when you find something that works, you know, you know, mm-hmm. in television, which you know is often a business of repeating itself, you know, you sort of figure out how to try and keep it going, even right. even if even if it is Huey Lewis and he doesn't have a great story. Right. <laughs> Oh, he has a great story. He just didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) So, anyway. 
Well, I got to see my share of bad behavior. Well, let's hear about some of that. Well, you know, uh, you know, the VMAs, uh, I remember the, you know, the Nirvana, was it Nirvana Guns and Roses uh, yeah. kind of, you know, feud that started backstage happened to happen to be oh, back I there. That. So was that really, was that legit? Oh no, that, that happened. Okay. <laughs> they were, they were just kind of screaming at each other in front of everybody. It was awkward and weird and uncomfortable. Um, I, uh, the, the, there was that night that, um, Axel went on stage to sing with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, they did, um, knocking on heaven's door. Mm. And so Axel walks on and they sing. And that was the finale. The song end shows over. They all walk off. If you're in the audience, it's stage, right? I actually was standing in the audience. And for some reason I went around stage left which I, I'm still not sure why, because stage right was where everything was. That's where the, you know, the producers were and that's where the talent came in and out. And so I came all the way around behind the stage to get to stage right. And by the time I got there, it was chaos. Uh, what I had missed was Axel walks off stage and Vince Neil cold cocked him. Um, I guess oh. a dispute over a young lady. But okay. uh, really? <laughs> I, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember everything, everybody and everything went crazy. Oh. You know, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly like two, ra- uh, two, uh, two uh, rap groups beefing, but uh, right. it was, it, it was close. <laughs> so a lot of that too. Women will make guys do that sometimes. I'll yeah. Tell you. yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, then there was like, uh, you know, uh, I remember we, uh, we used to do those rock and jock softball games, which were great. Um, yeah. you know, you get all the celebrities come out and play softball and, mm-hmm. uh, we, the first one we did, we did out here in Los Angeles at USC rod dado field, uh, which is a f- sort of a famous place on the USC campus. And we booked, um, Sam Kinison who oh. uh, during warmups went out and he used to wear those long coats. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Oh, those yeah. big sweeping mm-hmm. coats. So he walks yeah. out, he opens it up at the outfield wall with his back to, you know, people weren't really there yet. And he just takes a pee on the outfield wall. Mm. And, oh. uh, and then he goes <laughs> it back into the locker room, falls asleep on the trainer's table, never woke up. And uh, <laughs> needle, needless to say, MTD was not invited back to Rod Dado Field. Oh. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, stuff, stuff, stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. Showing some class there. Showing some class. <laughs> no matter how hard you work and script things out, it's the unscripted stuff you talk about, right? Yeah. St- well, yeah. I mean, you know, we we didn't do a lot of. I mean, mostly on the the the. The only live, live thing we ever would do is the award shows. And so we were lucky that those mostly came off without a hitch. We had the one famous Andrew Dice Clay incident uh, where he, you know, we had, you know, we had booked him and he was at the height of his career with all that filthy stuff. And we were idiots because we booked him and told him he couldn't do that stuff. And so he, uh, he gets on, he starts doing clean material. He's bombing and he starts doing the filthy stuff and everybody lost their mind. I thought I was going to get fired actually. Um, (laughs) Thankfully I didn't. Yeah. Uh, But uh, you know, so, so whether it was, you know, whatever we were doing, you know, spring break, you know, unplugs, you know, everything was, uh, was mostly taped. So we got to work around whatever might've gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Hey, thanks really for having me. It's really yeah, yeah, Doug. fun to talk to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. On your uh, podcast, we're going to be tuning in. What's the name of the podcast again? The podcast is called Basic When Cable Was Cool. Got it. Well, thanks, guys. This is fun. Yeah, thank you. Take thanks, care. Doug. All the best. Be good. See you. Great talking Bye-bye. to you, man. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 